Hey everybody, Corey here. Before this episode of Penknife begins, we'd plan to hit you up with one of those shameless requests for money. And while we'd be very grateful to anyone who wants to contribute to our Patreon, our main need right now is for you listeners to help us promote Penknife. The best way you can do that would be to press pause right now and go and rate us on Apple Podcasts or subscribe on whatever platform you're using to listen to us right now. Likewise, it'd be great if you could follow us and share a Penknife post on your social media. And most importantly, tell your friends. Okay, enough begging. Without further ado, here's the episode. Where the fuck is George Plimpton? That son of a bitch is letting Norman down again. Useless sycophant. Mailer hasn't asked for much, just for him to bring some of his powerful friends to the party, at least to show their faces for one fucking second, have one goddamn drink. He needs to prove to his voters that he's well connected. But Plimpton's bought no one. No Rockefeller, no police commissioner, no fancy pants journalist, not even a fucking state representative. Where the hell are the Democrats and his buddies in the city council? Grateful fucks. Word on the streets that Kennedy won narrowly by some 100,000 votes. And how many people had read his piece in Esquire about the Democratic Convention? A million, maybe? Fuck politicians. He'd turn Kennedy hip, helped him get elected, and not a single one of those fucking Dems could show their face to support his campaign? Squares, all of them. First-rate cocksuckers. Mailer's got something important to do, something real for real people. But those scumbags don't care about his mission, not the politicians, not the journalists, not even his family. The Kennedys are a clan, but the Mailers? Adele's a resentful drunk and hates his guts. His sister doesn't support him or his projects anymore, and his mother doesn't even register what's going on. Oh, fuck the whole lot of them. This is Mailer's night. He's about to launch the existentialist party and announce his mayoral run. He doesn't need the powerful to back him. His people are all right here. The hip, the hoodlums and the hobos. These people are real. They get where he's coming from and they'll be the ones to vote him to City Hall. Okay, they're not exactly the voting types, but Norman will figure that out later. Right now, he just wants to have a good time, the pads crammed with booze, and for once with people who know how to have fun. Not like those limp-wristed, polite, conversationalist, uptight assholes back in Hollywood, two-faced fuckers. When was that? Ten years already. It had been more than ten years, actually, but time flies, especially when you're stoned and drunk out of your mind. Mailer had moved to LA in 1949 with Beatrice, wife number one, who at the time was pregnant with Susie, daughter number one. Both his writing and the marriage were on the rocks, but he truly believed the warm California air and the baby would improve things. The plan was for him and his dear friend and political guru, the French writer Jean Malaquet, to make it big as screenwriters, but it turns out that writing a script and a novel are two very different endeavors, and Mailer wasn't very good with scripts. But no matter. He was having a blast, running high on fame and ego and partying with the likes of Monty Clift, Elizabeth Taylor and Charlie Chaplin. This wasn't helping him advance his stated goal of saving his marriage, but he did manage an impressive number of one-night stands. At a party Mailer hosted, a young Marlon Brando took him aside before leaving and asked him, What the fuck are you doing here? Why aren't you on a farm in Vermont writing your next novel? 
What kind of shit is this? It would take him a few months, but Mailer would eventually heed Brander's advice and move the family back east. Hollywood had been a complete disaster. He had nothing to show for his screenwriting efforts and his marriage was about to collapse. It was time to go back to New York and get to work on his second novel. But what Mailer actually did once he got home was spend his time partying, philandering and discovering the chemical pleasures of a wide array of drugs. Despite the distractions, he did eventually finish the second novel, and even a third before the decade ended. But by 1960, his literary, intellectual and political visions had grown bigger than fiction, and gelled into the outlandish idea that Norman Mailer should be the next mayor of New York City. His buddies at the Paris Review were on board. Doc Humes, the writer and psychedelic guru, agreed to manage his campaign, and journalist extraordinaire George Plimpton offered to help in any way he could. His first duty was to make sure the city's power elite turned up at the campaign's announcement party. Mailer himself, in the midst of a week-long bender, was in charge of ordering a truckload of booze, and also made sure he had enough benzos to wake up Rip Van Winkle. It was gonna be one hell of a night. And this, I promise you, is going to be one hell of an episode. It's all about Norman Mailer's Lost Weekend, a long one that started at some point in the early 50s and culminated on the night of November 19th, 1960. Or actually, in the wee hours of the following morning, at the tail end of one of the many parties Mailer and his second wife, Adele Morales, threw in their Upper West Side flat. Plimpton failed to deliver the bigwigs, but more than 200 people showed up. Most of them invited straight from the streets, the very people Mailer considered his natural constituents, the hoodlums, the hobos, and the thugs. It was a wild party, described by legendary publisher Barney Rosette as, quote, the most dangerous evening I've ever spent in my life. It was a party so fucking wild that it left one of the hosts in intensive care with a punctured pericardial sac and the other one temporarily committed to the Bellevue sideboard. I'm Santiago Lemoine, a bookseller, failing writer, and a long-term party avoider. And I'm Corey Eastwood, a bookseller, failing writer, and guy who wasn't invited to this party. You're listening to episode six of season one of Penknife, a podcast about writers who may or may not have written about crime, but who definitely committed it. This is one of those episodes we warned you about in the beginning of the series that deserves a special disclaimer. There's going to be some graphic depictions of violence in here. If listening to stories about that kind of stuff is not for you, skip this one and rejoin us at episode 7. Norman Mailer met Adele Morales back in 1951, when he was about to both divorce his first wife and finish his much-dreaded second novel, Barbary Shore. Much dreaded because, A, he was aware that keeping up with the expectations created by the naked and the dead would be nearly impossible, and B, because he knew the book was, well, not very good. 
It had been written in short, half-hearted bursts, and was filled with a kind of political vitriol that is much better suited to journalism than fiction. It's the story of a World War II veteran who attempts to write a novel in his room at a Brooklyn boarding house, all the while engaging in heavy political discussions and rants with his neighbors and friends. Or, in plainer words, it's a barely disguised version of Mailer's last few years and of his political views, heavily influenced by Malaké. Regardless of his fears about how the book would be received, a novel and a divorce had to be celebrated. And that was exactly what Mailer was doing with his buddy Dan Wolf, publisher, editor, and future co-founder of The Village Voice, late one night in February 51. Between glasses of bourbon, Wolf told Mailer about a Spanish-Peruvian painter, a beautiful woman who apparently was just coming out of a brief romance with that aspiring novelist people kept talking about, Jack Kerouac. Well, Mailer didn't give a fuck about Kerouac, but that woman, yeah, she sounded nice. Could she come over? She could, and she did, and together they slept, and so began Adele Morales and Norman Mailer's turbulent relationship. A relationship filled with shouting and door slamming, fistfights and living room bullfights. Their favorite party trick, actually, in which Adele would mimic the bull so that Norman could indulge in his bullfighter fantasy. A relationship marked by tears, insults and pledges to leave, often followed by make-up threesomes and orgies, and many, many wild parties. Parties, 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 they'd thrown some good ones. Like that time when a couple of thugs came looking for trouble and Mailer had given them plenty. Well, the cocksuckers had whacked him in the head with a fucking hammer. But you can't call it a party if there aren't any fights. Fitzgerald, that drunken fuck, he got it right as usual. How'd it go? I want to give a party where there's a brawl and seductions of people going home with their feelings hurt and women passed out on the toilet. Well, tonight's party would put Fitzgerald's to shame. A brawl? No problem. Why not a riot? Even soft little Allen Ginsberg's on fire. He just called that critic asshole Potterett's a big dumb fuckhead and the two had a little shoving match. Critics always deserve it, but Mailer won't just take on critics. He's going to fight every single son of a bitch who's let him down. He'll beat the cancer out of every single fucking person in the room if he has to. He's ready. Bullfighter shirt and all. Plimpton's first in line, if you're going to find him. And where's Adele? Probably hiding somewhere, stewing in resentment as usual. Oh, how she despises him now. You'll never write another good book. You just got lucky once. Well, how can he write another novel if he's stuck in a life completely void of experience? A safe, soft existence with no danger or excitement. To be a writer, one has to be a man, like Papa. One has to live. Mailer knows he's ruffled feathers with his essay, Quick Evaluations on the Talent in the Room. He can picture the so-called writers all hiding in Paris, licking their wounds and trash-talking him. Jones and Styron. They had their fun back in the day, sure, but those two ended up becoming part of the establishment, so fuck them both. And fuck Plimpton too while he's at it. The son of a bitch hasn't brought anyone, doesn't even have the balls for a little fistfight. Participatory journalism, my ass, Plimpton. Learn to dirty your blue-blooded hands a little or else shut the fuck up. Where is he anyway? Where the hell is Adele? But more importantly, where the fuck has Mailer left his benzos? He'll need them for his next mission, which is to go and list photos straight from the street. 2 a.m., 94th and Broadway, 
the perfect time and place for a little canvassing. He'll beat their fucking votes out of them if he has to. Mailer hadn't always been on a steady diet of benzedrine, and he hadn't always hated his second wife and his so-called friends. Back in the early 50s, his poison of choice was plain bourbon, and he would drink copious amounts of it, often while hanging out with fellow novelists James Jones and William Styron. The trio spent their evenings boozing, playing cards, discussing literature, and, yes, enjoying the company of numerous young women. They bragged about being the three best writers of their generation. Styron had just published his first novel, Lie Down in Darkness, to great acclaim, and Jones, largely forgotten and utterly unread nowadays, had won the National Book Award with his book From Here to Eternity, and was then the real literary superstar and heir apparent to Hemingway, much to Norman's chagrin. The praise Jones received hurt all the more after Barbary Shore had, just as it feared, been destroyed by critics. It was time to score a hit, so Mailer got to work on something big, a Hollywood novel that would be his opus. He would strike back at the two-faced LA big shots that had abandoned him. But that was just the beginning. The new novel would be the first installment of a planned series of books that would not only describe and explain the American society for the soulless cesspool of greed and materialism it was, it would in his own words, out Joyce James. Well, if only. What came after almost three years of drafts, corrections and rewrites was The Deer Park, a standalone novel that, despite Meller's best-selling cred, got rejected by seven publishing houses before finding a taker. It was the wholesome 1950s, after all, and for most publishers, a blowjob scene even one so subtle that it mentioned neither mouth nor genitalia, was a step too far. The Deer Park follows a World War II veteran, as he witnesses the moral depravity of the West Coast elite, fights not to be devoured by its power structure, and eventually opts out by refusing to sell the rights for the movie adaptation of his war story. Morally victorious, he ends up moving to Mexico to become a bullfighter. In real life, however, Mailer rather dug Hollywood's flash and glitter, and resented it mostly because, in the end, it rejected him. As for Mexico, he never moved there, nor engaged in any bullfighting outside of his living room. The few times he visited, he behaved like any other dumb gringo, and spent most of his time smoking weed and munching peyote. These trips, both kind of trips, were, according to Norman, attempts to probe his own psyche, and explore the darkest corners of his mind. He justified his stonings by keeping a diary of self-analysis he called the Lipton's Journal, a barely-veiled reference to the tea he was constantly smoking. Picture a sort of late adolescent existential burst, greatly enhanced by his nascent drug habits, a renewed interest in Freud and Wilhelm Reich's works, and his friendship with a psychologist and writer by the name of Robert Lindner who'd published a study of the criminal's psychopath mind called Rebel Without a Cause. The famous movie borrowed the book title and exemplified one of the main theories put forward by Lindner. Rebellion is the only alternative for the individual who cannot adjust to society. Mailer would take this idea to heart and expand it with his own literary touches. 
throw in a cup of Camus, a soupçon of Sartre, a smidgen of Genet, a dash of Dostoevsky, a kilo of Kierkegaard and a milliliter of Marx, then smoke it in marijuana fumes, let it marinate in bourbon for a few years, and then take the whole thing to the local prison to interview a few inmates with your friend Lindner, and you might end up with a concoction of ideas and theories similar to the ones Mailer's confused mind came up with. To him, sins and crimes were just a release valve for the pressure society exercises on individuals, and can become the origin of cathartic, almost religious experiences. The sinner and the psychopath are just saints in disguise, saints our society rejects, and crime is inherent to human nature. In Mailer's words, crime, quote, was instinctive. It was something you did. It was an arrow in your quiver. It was one of your answers to your environment. It was a way of continuing to live. No crime is ever too bad not to be explored. Electricity, sex, fire, booze, cells, the stuff of life and death, it's all in his hands, between his fingers, wrapped around death, it's ready to take off into the dark fucking night and blow up into a million pieces. The sounds and the noise bouncing between his ears, all the words he said, all the ones that were right, all the screams and the silences compressed into a single punch. The anger and the resentment of a thousand nights spent like this, marching through the dark urban desert, preparing for the final assault, looking for another enemy. Thousand friends spent, or just a fucking fist can land. There's only now, and it's meant to be forever. If Mailer couldn't get praise and recognition as a major novelist, he had to find another way to remain relevant. So, by 1955, after the Deer Park got described by critics as sordid and crummy moronic mindlessness and the year's worst snake pit in fiction, he decided to try his hand at journalism. And he could think of no better place to do so than the little weekly paper his buddy Dan Wolf had just started called The Village Voice. Believe it or not, The Village Voice had initially been conceived as a rather conformist and safe community newspaper, but Mailer wanted it to become radical and controversial, revolutionary even, and he did his best to fill his pages with sex and drugs and violence. One of his ideas, rejected by his friends, was to include regular interviews with criminals and murderers. His weekly column explored some of the half-baked existential ideas he had journaled while stoned and tripping, and the resulting pieces were more often than not outrageous creeds written in a condescending and insulting tone. For decades to come, New Yorkers would sit around diner booths or their kitchen tables, flipping through the voices classifieds or personals, and impress each other with literary trivia by saying, you know, this rug was started by Norman Mailer. The truth is that Mailer came to the table late and stoned, and then, because the voice wasn't revolutionary enough for him, he resigned after just a couple of months. But the experience taught him a few things. One, there was no such thing as bad publicity. And two, journalism and essays might be mediums worth exploring. Only a fight will do. A fight or a fuck, another pill or a drink. The blind anger and the simplicity of landing a punt, and then another. One punch, getting beaten up. 
Only that can make That's sense, some because quitting or giving up is never an option. One punch and then another. There's the dignity, there's the answer. There's life. Life doesn't live in cocktail parties or editing rooms. Life lives in the streets and sex. And in violence, life is the fight. General hip against the sea of squares. Norman Lane, the white negro, the psychic outlaw, have all the answers as soon as his fist lands on the face of that son of a bitch standing in front of him. One punch, and then another. One vote, then another. One fucking word, and then the next, until the never-ending present sentence runs into forever. In 1957, after a long trip to Europe and in an attempt to settle down and live like a normal couple, Norman and Adele, who was pregnant with their first daughter, bought a farmhouse in Connecticut. Along with setting up a ring in his shed to get more serious about boxing, Mailer also built his very own variation of Wilhelm Reich's Orgone Accumulator, a sort of telephone booth that one enters in order to replenish their life energy and enhance their sexual health or something like that. In any case, Mailer, even in this new, seemingly wholesome rural setting, was still preoccupied by the two things he'd been obsessed with since adolescence, sex and violence. Luckily, New York City wasn't too far away, and this was the Madman era, where schmucks like Mailer could drive into the city for the night to attend a party, get smashed, start a fight, cheat on their wife and then drunkenly drive back to the farm in time to hear the roosters crow. Such was Mailer's life when he decided to write a manifesto of sorts for the philosophy of the hipster, a convoluted, baffling text he called The White Negro. In it, Mailer threw out everything he had. Big words, meandering sentences, enormous ellipses and, of course, outrageous ideas. The result, aside from being, in James Baldwin's words, downright impenetrable, glorifies the hipster as a rebel whose violence is primarily aimed against the institutional violence of the state. He is a figure that contains both the saint and the psychopath, who swings from the transient emptiness of the drug addict to the eternal wholeness of the mystic a being who lives in the perpetuity of the instant without a thought for the past or the future, unconcerned by the consequences of his actions. The hipster was essentially a US nihilistic version of the European existentialist, one who's less preoccupied by society, philosophy or thought and more oriented towards individualism, spirituality and action. Action that's always spontaneous and often violent and therefore different from the Beats, whom Mailer perceived as too passive and sentimental. He saw his ideas embodied in the ultimate outcast, the African-American male, or in Mailer's 1950s terminology, the Negro. In one of the essay's most famous passages, Mailer expresses admiration for the courage, quote, two 18-year-old hoodlums showed when murdering a shopkeeper. Along with this unabashed glorification of violence, the essay is also notable for its completely racist claim of the hypersexuality of black males, essentially a rewrite of the myth of the noble savage. Anyhow, Mailer truly believed this essay would pave the way for the urban revolt 
he hoped to spearhead in the near future. He saw himself as a prophet, a hero, and the voice of a silenced generation. Well, almost everyone's gone, but screw them. Right now, he just needs to know where the remaining stand. The hip, the rebels, the ones voting for Mayor Mailer. On this side of the room, please. And the squares, the shit-eaters, the ones for the establishment, over fucking there. Plimpton's gone, that son of a bitch, but he can guess what side he'd be on, the same as Jones and Styron. Fucking Bill Styron. How dare he badmouth Adele in public and call her a lesbian just because she knows how to have fun and he fucking doesn't. If she's too loud and wild and real and working class for him, well, he can go fuck himself over there nice and gently along with Jonesy, another backstabbing cocksucker, another little Hemingway wannabe with all his hard drinking and soft writing. And what about the critics? The intellectuals, the smart cunts. Over there, all of them, with their forked tongues and their vacuous flattery. Screw them all. Tonight belongs to the hoodlums and the hobos, the rebels and the drug addicts, the prostitutes and the pimps, electricity, energy and anger. That's all that's left. And him, them, the saint and the psychopath. God's dying, so who the fuck cares about what happens down there? Neddy, the maid, yeah, she's on his side. But who else? Baldwin? He isn't even in the same continent. But maybe. And Burroughs, that son of a bitch is a rebel. A real one. But you know what? Fuck the living. The ones on his side are the dead. Baudelaire, Balzac, Dostoevsky. And where the fuck's Adele? Still alive, sure, but dead drunk and cancer-ridden. Anger, resentment, expectations, all the artificial pressures of the modern world are just killing her. Slowly eating her body and her psyche away. There she is, across the room, sizing him up. He's tried. He's really tried to bring her out of her hatred to turn her into the lady she wants to be. But it's all doomed to fail, all fucked because of the endless fights and infinite anger, all the affairs and the cocktail parties and the constant sarcastic comments and the snarky fucking glances. Satan and his wife aren't all that well-liked anymore. They aren't welcome. And it's killing her, and it's killing him, and they've been killing each other for years. And if the instant is never over, if the present is to continue forever, well then maybe now's the time to finally die and come back. Eternal and pure. By the end of 1958, the mailers had had enough of rural life and were ready to move back to New York. The masks were off. They were not cut out for a peaceful existence and would never settle down, not even now that Adele was pregnant with her second daughter. Mailer was sick of his old self and, with the help of his chemical substances of choice, booze, pills and weed, he got to work on a collection of essays, journalism, fiction and introspective pieces that would draw a sort of self-portrait of the author. Aptly titled Advertisements for Myself, the new book wrote the success of The White Negro, which was the collection's centerpiece, and was better received than his previous two novels. It finally managed to return Mailer to center stage, this time as a public intellectual. He was publishing pieces in virtually every important magazine in the country. His face was regularly on TV. And who gave a damn if his second marriage was about to collapse? If all of the writers he had once called friends hated him after he'd attacked them all in one of his book's essays, or if he was drunk more often than sober. He was hip. He was famous. 
and the whole country, which seemed on the verge of a revolution, was at his feet. Maybe it wouldn't be a political revolution, but Mailer felt ready to lead the US into its long overdue sexual and moral awakening. The cherry on the cake came with the offer to write a piece about the upcoming Democratic National Convention for Esquire magazine. Mailer was digging this hip young fella, Kennedy, and he had a gut feeling that he was going to win it all and preside over the radical change coming to the US. Hell yeah! With Norman's help, JFK could even make America hip again. And after the election, Mailer was convinced that he had not only changed political journalism forever with his widely read essay about Kennedy and the convention, but that he had also altered the course of American history by helping JFK become president. He was now sure that aside from being the most important writer of his generation, he too had a brilliant political career ahead of him. Yes, he would run for mayor of New York with a non-existent existentialist party. He would represent the disenfranchised. He would give voice to the voiceless. He would turn the square hip. In front of him is everything. Behind him the naked and the dead. The secret armies of the night. In front of him there's whatever's left of the night. Behind him countless parties, three novels, 37 years of death. In front of him is the everlasting present, the immortal instant behind him, only the past, which doesn't even exist anymore anyway. And if the past isn't there, then it can't carry any consequence. In front of him is the existential moment, the transcendental spontaneity. Behind him, history, melting into nothingness, minutes turning into hours, days disintegrating, nights vanishing. Right now in front of him, his own bloodied face, his black eye, his torn shirt, in front of him his thoughts which don't fucking matter anymore, nor his words, nor his writing. Only action, only action has meaning. And he has meaning too because he has a message, a motive, a mission. He will lead the world through the hip revolution. Behind him, nothing, nobody. In front of him, the room, the floor littered with broken glass and cigarette butts. The table overthrown, in front of him the den of thieves. Money changers and crooks, non-believers, the whole lot of them. Doubters and traitors, behind him nothing, nobody. In front of him Adele, contemptuous and scornful, hateful and sick, filled with rage and anger. In front of him her mouth moving, her lips in action, her words slowly forming. Aya, daughter, Aya, come on you little faggot, where's your balls? Did your ugly whore of a mistress cut them off, you son of a bitch? Adele, in front of him, the bull, the red anger incarnate, and behind him nothing, nobody in his mind, no words, no thoughts, only action, his hand searching in his pocket, his bullfighter's shirt ripped, his body lurching forward through the endless present, his hand now holding an object, its blade forever unfolding, a click, the penknife cutting through space and time, the instant lasting until it can't last anymore as the point of the penknife enters her skin and the two and a half inch long rusty blade cuts through her flesh, his fist pushing deeper and deeper into her abdomen and towards her heart and then back out, back into the light in the present. And as she collapses, he stabs her again, this time in the back, and then he just stands there, his body looming over Adele as she bleeds out on the floor. And the few remaining guests gather around to help her, and the present finally breaks and staggers towards the future, and words tumble out of his mouth. 
Don't touch her. Let the bitch die. November 20th, 1960. With Adele in the hospital, undergoing surgery for a punctured pericardial sac, it was high time for Norman Mailer to finally come to terms with his decade-long lost weekend and face the consequences. But surprise, surprise, Norman wasn't interested in atonement. When Adele's surgery was complete, Mailer was waiting in her hospital room. His first words were, Baby, I watched you being wheeled in and you never look so beautiful. He then got down on his hands and knees and told her he'd stabbed her to save her from her cancer. Again, this confused catch-all metaphor. And then begged her to say she'd fallen on broken glass. Subsequent visitors included Mailer's mum and publishers, all of whom pushed Adele to tell the glass story. Initially, she agreed. But given the number of witnesses and the severity of the wound, the penknife had missed her heart by only a few millimeters, it wasn't looking good for Mailer. His family and friends quickly rallied and closed ranks around him as they started to organize his defense. First things first, get Mailer to a psychiatrist for a quick, friendly chat. Always good to have the age-old temporary insanity defense ready if needed. Second, well, pretend nothing was out of the ordinary, of course. After spending the night at a friend's house and slipping off his hangover, Mailer carried on with the rest of his prior engagements. Namely, a taped interview for Mike Wallace's show. Yes, you heard that right. The day after the stabbing, he went on TV and famously declared that one thing he wouldn't be able to combat as mayor of New York, he was still planning to run, was gang crime, because disarming the youth was impossible. In his words, The knife to a juvenile delinquent is very meaningful. You say it's his sword, his manhood. By the end of the second day after the stabbing, Adele finally admitted what had really happened, and Mailer was arrested and jailed. But only for a night. At his arraignment, the judge excused the attempted murder, or let's call it what it was, his sanctioned violent misogyny, and Mailer got committed to Bellevue Hospital for observation. When the judge told him that his problem was that he couldn't distinguish fiction from reality, Mailer retorted. I've been a little upset, but I've never been out of my mental faculties. It is important to me not to be sent to a mental hospital because my work in the future will be considered that of a disordered mind. My pride is that I can explore areas of experience that other men are afraid of. Or, in less pompous words, Mailer just couldn't stomach the idea of his work being tainted by his disgusting actions. In total, Mailer spent a whopping 17 days in the psych ward, where, just as he had done while working at the Boston hospital almost two decades prior, he kept a diary of the experience and took notes for his future writing. By mid-January, he was back home, and even though Adele continued to refuse to sign a complaint against him, he was indicted by a grand jury on two counts of felonious assault. At first, Mailer pleaded not guilty, but eventually agreed to a plea bargain of third-degree assault, a Class A misdemeanor. He received a suspended sentence, three-year probation, no jail time. In return, 
Mendel promised the judge that he would make a contribution to society through his writing, and that he had already reduced his drinking to a minimum. Except that no, not really. When Adele, still recovering from her wounds, asked him to quit drinking, Mailer refused, and later said, I couldn't quit drinking then or I'd get cancer, but offered to drink outside of the house a couple nights a week. On one of those booze-soaked nights, which definitely were not limited to two a week, Mailer met Lady Jean Campbell, who would in time become his third wife. After a year of putting up with this kind of bullshit, Adele had had enough, and they finally separated. Though she made a full physical recovery from the stabbing, Adele was left psychically scarred and, in her own words, trapped in a purgatory of hatred. She struggled with alcoholism for many years, but eventually overcame it and managed to resume her artistic career, acting, sculpting and painting. Despite the fact that she had done a great deal to save her husband from jail, as soon as their daughters finished university, Mailer drastically reduced her alimony. She lived the rest of her life in a one-bedroom, rent-stabilized flat in Manhattan and died in 2015. In the aftermath of what he, from then on, referred to as the trouble, Norman Mailer's life hardly changed at all, though he did call off his mayoral run a few days after he failed to launch it. In 1962, he published a short book of terrible poetry aptly titled Death for the Ladies which contains the line, So long as you use a knife, there's some love left. Make of that what you will. His family continued to stand by his side, with his mother declaring that Adele had, quote, goaded her little genius into stabbing her, and the literary elite convinced itself that one of their own couldn't possibly be a criminal. James Jones declared that the stabbing was partly the result of Adele being, quote, a lousy wife and Lionel Trilling said the stabbing was, quote, a Dostoevsky ploy to test the limits of evil itself. Even Gore Vidal, who would eventually become one of Mailer's most notorious nemesis, told him, you're first a literary man, and second, someone who got into criminal trouble. Protected by a judicial system constructed to serve powerful white males such as himself, Norman Mailer never faced any real consequences for the stabbing of Adele Morales. In fact, the crime was largely forgotten, and the 60s would bring him, and fellow writer and criminal Jerzy Kuczynski, all the fame and glory they'd ever dreamed of. That's next week on Penknife. Penknife is created, written, and produced by Corey Eastwood and Santiago Lemoine. Ramona Stout is our editor and narrator. The logo and all things visual have been made by Nelly Cuellar Torres. The sound design, the music, and all things audio are the work of Diego Sanchez of La Pianola Studio in Buenos Aires. Our website, penknifepodcast.com, was built by Flor Lopez. And a very special thanks to Mr. Rico Benelli for letting us turn his spare bedroom into a recording studio. 
Season 1 of Penknife took us two years to make. We're eager to get started on Season 2, and trust me, we've got some really good stories about writers behaving badly, but to do so, we need your help. If you're enjoying what you're hearing and want Season 2 to become a reality, please consider heading over to patreon.com slash penknife to support us. A cup of coffee or two a month would go a long way. Please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review Penknife on whatever app or platform you're using. And most importantly, if you like the podcast, please tell a friend about us. And thank you for listening. Fucking Norman Mailer. Ugh.